Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out what Canadian street was just named the coolest in the world by Time Out magazine. The city it's in may not be a huge surprise, but the street, the street may be. We meet a Toronto entrepreneur using social media to raise awareness about wheelchair access in public spaces and places such as restaurants, and it is proving to be a big hit. We speak with former Conservative Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt about what can be done to stop the intimidation and threatening behaviour aimed at politicians. That following an ugly incident targeting Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland in Grand Prairie, Alberta on Friday. But first, as we get set to mark 25 years since the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, we speak to her longtime personal secretary and chief of staff about what she was like, her legacy, and how she should be remembered this week. Well, this Wednesday marks an important anniversary. It is the 25th anniversary of the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Many of you will remember, as I do, where you were when word of the 35, the 36-year-old having been involved in a serious car crash in Paris along her then-boyfriend, Dodi Fayed, first broke, and where you were when her death was announced hours after that. It prompted, of course, an outpouring, really an avalanche of sympathy in the UK, across the Commonwealth, such as here in Canada, and right around the world. Remember, more than a million bouquets were left outside Diana's home at Kensington Palace in the days following her death. And in so many ways, the presence of the People's Princess and her legacy is still felt very deeply today, both inside the monarchy with how it works, our perception of it, and of course, far beyond. She was, as she admitted, a source of seemingly endless media attention and public fascination. Here she is speaking in 1993, following her separation from Prince Charles. When I started my public life 12 years ago, I understood the media might be interested in what I did. I realized then their attention would inevitably focus on both our private and public lives. But I was not aware of how overwhelming that attention would become. Diana speaking back in 1993. Well, few knew her in those years leading up to her divorce from Prince Charles and death. Then her equerry and later private secretary and chief of staff, Patrick Jeffson. He was a former naval officer, is a former naval officer, who worked as closely as anyone could with Diana as her senior advisor from much of the period between 1988 and 1996. And Patrick Jeffson, now a consultant, journalist, broadcaster, New York Times bestselling author of books including Shadows of a Princess and The Megan Factor, joins us now. Thank you so much for your time. Ben, good to be with you. It is a remarkable story how you got that job because you were in the Navy one day and a few days later you were you were working for Diana. It's, how did that happen? Yes, it, it does seem a bit surreal even looking back at it. The, the procedure is fairly simple. Senior members of the royal family have lent to them on a, usually on a two-year loan um, officers from, from the armed forces on a uh, secondment as military aid, known as an equerry. And uh, each service puts up two candidates. I was told I was one of the Navy candidates. It's not something you volunteer for. I was also told that I wasn't going to get the job. So I was quite relaxed. I was just glad to be off my, my beautiful frigate that we'd been um, bobbing around in the North Atlantic on patrol uh, for, for weeks and weeks. And suddenly, instead of being on the frigate with my shipmates, I was having lunch at Kensington Palace with the world's most famous and beautiful woman. And this was the selection process. So because I thought I wasn't going to get the job, I just, I just relaxed and enjoyed it. I thought I can tell my grandkids I met Princess Di. And maybe because I was relaxed. Um, you know, we got on quite well, and she offered me the job. And then two years later, instead of going back to the Navy, because she and Charles were splitting up, she said, I want my own office, I want my own organization, and I want you to set it up and run it for me. And she said to me, Patrick, we're going to go conquer the world. And I could hardly say no to that. Certainly not. Well, you hardly couldn't. Um, how was she? I mean, we know so much of... Diana, the public figure, but it's very hard to imagine intimate Diana, you know, day to day, the Diana that had to confront the media, the Diana that had to confront the ups and downs, the many ups and downs that you would have witnessed, that you would have helped her through. Well, Ben, that's a, that is, you know, the, the recurring question. What was she like? And I was just looking at my old diary. 
It is 35 years ago next month uh, that I did that that uh, selection process, that lunch. And that was wow. the first time people said to me, what was she really like? And for the last 35 years, I've been trying to find the ultimate answer. So I will try. I mean, she was, it's easier almost to say what she was not. She, I mean, she is remembered as being very approachable and relatable and informal and empathetic. And she was all those things. But she was not the girl next door. She was very much an aristocratic woman. She was in many ways more royal than the royal family themselves. She had a kind of innately regal quality. And I think if you ask anybody who met her, they would say the same. She looked like a princess. She spoke like a princess. She uh, acted like a princess, not least because she knew that if people were going to wait to see her for you know hours and hours, she needed to make sure they were not disappointed. And also, and this is a very important point about her, she was a very disciplined person. She made her, her job look easy. She made it possible to be spontaneous uh, and uh, to be outgoing and, and approachable because she worked so hard on her preparation. I would, I would do briefing folders for her. I would research things for her. And yet she would always want more. She was brilliant at devouring her briefing notes. She was um, meticulous, not just about her own appearance, but about the whole standard of, of her team. We were a very small little team, but she was insistent that we would be the best. She called us the A-team. And we knew that for her to be her best, her spontaneous uh, and uh, um, wonderfully engaging uh, self, we had to put in the hard work first so that, so that she could make it look easy. It's always been thought of that she was quite vulnerable. I think a lot of people remember back to her wedding day, the early Diana. But I've heard you describe her as being tough, that she was tough. She was, a, she was a formidable person and, and someone who would not back down in the face of adversity. Yes, she was this fascinating um, mixture in a way. Um, certainly she was vulnerable, especially if you think about what an unhappy private life she had. You know, her parents splitting up when she was very young, her mother leaving home, then marrying into this family where she quite reasonably expected she would be looked after. And it turned out that she had got herself into a kind of marital trap um, that her husband loved somebody else. Uh, her in-laws, for all their goodwill, nevertheless were distant, um, difficult to communicate with, didn't seem to understand the predicament she was in. Um, she was very much left to her own resources. And she dug deep inside herself, and she discovered that not only did she have strength, she had a kind of... Um, legitimate defiance when she felt that she was uh, on the receiving end of injustice. A lot of her critics were surprised and indeed wrong-footed to discover just uh, how much steel there was inside Princess Diana. And uh, I mean, it made my life sometimes very difficult. But she had a wonderful sense of right and wrong. She um, did not uh, uh, give in easily. She knew when she had uh, a sort of, um, well, she had a very good moral compass, and she knew when she was going in the right direction. And she was quite properly uh, impatient with obstacles that I might put in her way. You know, this is too difficult, or that would be uh, contentious, or maybe, you know, we should try it another way. She knew uh, what she was trying to achieve. She had a vision, and because of that, she worked hard. She earned the love, affection, loyalty, respect that we still give her to this day. What did she make of the incredible obsession that the media had with her? This, this, this insatiable fascination, the paparazzi, the chasing. She mentions it in that clip that I played earlier on, you know, how overwhelming it could be. Well, certainly she was the most public of public figures, but... You know, it's also worth remembering that royal people, you know, what we see of them is only a very, very small part of their lives. Most of the time, they do enjoy complete privacy. Uh, they have extraordinary material advantages. They are able to live lives of, of uh, 
um, pretty unparalleled material well-being. Um, Diana, though, just going back to her vulnerability, she was vulnerable because, as I said, of her, her, the private unhappiness she had. And she was able to recycle that into an understanding for other people who were excluded or unwanted. She said to me, Patrick, I can do this because I'm one of them. She meant that she had been unwanted, stigmatized. I mean, her critics uh, leveled the accusation at her that she was mentally ill. So she knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of very, very unfriendly coverage. And she used that to develop her own empathy for people, for example, with HIV AIDS, with leprosy, um, mental illness, addiction, homelessness. It's a very long list of gritty humanitarian causes she supported. And she did it so well because she was able to relate on an emotional level with the people she met. And that's not something that traditionally was uh, what you expected from the royal family. I've heard you refer to it as putting the human in humanitarian. I'm speaking with Patrick Jeffson. He is Princess Diana's former private secretary and chief of staff. Uh, We're talking about the 25th anniversary uh, of her passing, which comes up this Wednesday. When we come back, a bit more about her legacy and how this day will be marked on Wednesday and how it should be marked, how she should be remembered. That's next. It is a great pleasure to have Patrick Jeffson with us this half hour. He is Princess Diana's former personal secretary and uh, chief of staff, worked with her for a decade. We're talking about uh, her legacy, who she was, what she was like as we approach the 25th anniversary of her passing. Um, Patrick, about her sons, she, she always seemed, you know, to be protective of them as well, but also understood what it was that they would become. I remember you once saying that, you know, most people tell their kids not to meet strangers or not to talk to strangers, but she had to encourage her children to talk to strangers because it was part of who they were. Yes, that was a really nice story. Uh, I think it was the first time William did his big, his first big meet the people uh, afternoon, um, St. David's Day in Cardiff. He was only 10 and Diana said to him, you know, you're going to meet a lot of people today. And you have to remember that beating you is going to be a memory for them that's going to last the rest of their lives. For you, it may be only 30 seconds. So you have to remember everything you do will be a memory for somebody else. And I think that's something that she instinctively knew that they would have to get used to, um, that royalty survives, I think, as long as there are these hundreds of thousands of individual memories. And... uh, She wanted William and Harry not to be like normal children because she knew they couldn't be, but at least to understand what ordinary people's lives were like. So she would take them to the movies, to McDonald's, to theme parks, uh, to Disney World, Uh, not to make them ordinary because she knew to their cost they would never be ordinary, but at least to understand that, certainly in William's case, the people over whom he would one day reign you would understand something of their lives. And in the same way, she took them to visit homeless shelters, um, as she told me, uh, so that they knew not to be afraid of, of uh, challenging people and places. Do you see a lot of them when you see them today, when you see William and Harry today? Do you see that influence of their mum still? Uh, I mean, I think with royal people, you can see anything you look for. Um, I... I'm not one of those who say, you know, they're just like her. I'm sure that within their own judgment, within their own uh, approach to their royal destiny, they have unconsciously absorbed a lot of what she taught them, a lot of what their father taught them. Ultimately, each of them has to choose how they deal with this extraordinary opportunity and burden they have been given. But I hope that Diana at least has left them with the clear impression, the clear knowledge that uh, the way to achieve anything is through compassion, through understanding other people, through good manners. She taught them to be very appreciative of the people they they grew up around, their protection officers, the people like me who who ran their lives. And I think she taught them too that royalty is not about uh, what you can get out of it. It's about serving something bigger than yourself that requires sacrifice, And it offers enormous rewards, but it is also uh, extraordinarily um, isolating, can be very lonely. And therefore, I'm sure she would have 
stress for them the importance of finding wives who would be supportive partners in this extraordinary destiny they have. Did they? <laughs> well, I think it's too early to say. Um, she, of course, it's interesting. I mean, the, the poignant thing for me is that I was with Charles and Diana when long before they were separated and divorced, as well as afterwards. And when they were together, many listeners in Canada will remember this. They were a wonderful double act, absolute world beaters. They were terrific together. And I still am convinced that with a bit more help, they might have managed to get through the difficulties in their marriage, might still be the future king and queen, um, and Diana would still be with us. Unfortunately, I think when it, it came to it, there were more people who wanted them apart than together, and uh, that is a mistake that she would not want anybody else to, to make. Um, this, this is the, the, the critical thing, that being royal is teamwork. It does require people who understand the kind of life you're living to give you support, encouragement, um, to give you direction and constructive criticism. Diana lacked all that. At the end of a long day, uh, somewhere in the provinces of England or on an overseas tour, she didn't go back to a friendly, warm, supportive family home. She went back to an empty apartment in a big, dark palace because her husband was away with somebody else. And that always would... would uh, hurt my heart that she would give so much in the day and yet receive so little in her own private life to replenish those emotional reserves that she gave so freely to those she met. I only have about 45 seconds, but in a, a few words, how should we remember her on Wednesday? Ah, with gratitude and with a smile. I mean, it sounds rather rather uh, serious, a lot of the stuff we've been discussing Ben, but actually, wherever you, you found Diana, you also found a lot of laughter. She always knew when to stop being too serious. She didn't like pomposity. She knew the rule book, but she didn't live by it. And um, she knew how to laugh at herself. And a hundred times uh, in a day, I would think, gosh, she can be hard work, but boy, she's always worth it. Best boss you'll ever had, my old captain said, and he was right. Patrick Jeffson, much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Good night. We've arrived at that time of the night to talk about the world's coolest streets. And the world's coolest street, according to Time Out magazine, happens to be right here in Canada. But I've been asking you tonight about cool streets, and uh, Steve had a good one. A uh, cool street name is Hawkins Pickle. That's a great street name. Sounds like Hawkins Cheesies, but it's not. I'll leave that to Shane. Hawkins Pickle, located in the Fraser Valley. This is how you access the Inch Creek Fish hatchery. Not sure how the road and the creek, not sure if the road and the creek have anything to do with each other. True story. Hawkins Pickle. That is a good name for a street. See, a cool name will qualify if there's a great cool name for a street in your hometown. Uh, I'll have a story about this one because when I was in my uh, 20s, my dad uh, took a different job and ended up in an office on a street called, which used to be called Church Street a million years ago, and then became De L'Eglise Street when it was uh, uh, put into French. Uh, so Church Street became De L'Eglise, and it was in Verdun, which is a neighborhood of Montreal that is uh, relatively well known if you live in Montreal. There's a subway line that runs through it. Um, but it wasn't a place you necessarily did a lot of hanging out. Uh, certainly no one I knew from Verdun hung out in Verdun. Uh, and Wellington Street was the big main drag in Verdun. It, there's an intersection of Church Street and, and Wellington Street, or De L'Eglise and Rue Wellington as they became. Um, and Wellington Street was, you know, kind of kind of sad, a bit grim. Verdun for a long time was a dry uh, municipality, no bars, no industry. Um, so it, it was not a place you spent time at. And, and no restaurants, really, to speak of. A few here and there, some family businesses, all fine for the neighborhood, but you didn't make a point of going there. So it was quite surprising to find out that Wellington Street is the coolest street on the planet. Now, I knew this because my dad now lives in that neighborhood, so I've been back there quite a few times in the past decade, and it is completely transformed. So if you think of all the things that make a street cool, like what is it? Is it is it walkability? Is it the kind of businesses that are there? Is it, is it the number of families that live in the area that use it as their street? Is it a certain street life that exists? Um, is it peace, peace and quiet, green space, all of the above? Uh, probably. 
So Time Out Magazine, uh, publishing the best of cities, happenings, culture, food, and so on around the world, just released its list of 33 coolest streets. And there it is at the very top, Montreal's Rue Ellington. Um, it's interesting. And I, I really want to find out how that happened. There's a Toronto Street, Ossington, that also made the top 15. So two Canadian streets in the top 15, including right up at the top, uh, as Casey Kasem would say, number one with a bullet. Joining me now with more on this is Laura Osborne. She's editor of Time Out Canada. Thanks for your time. Happy to be here. So I guess the the invariable question is, what makes a street cool when it came to uh, to listing the 33 coolest? So Time Out's coolest streets in the world, this 2022 list, basically is put together from, you know, an annual survey of about 20,000 global city residents. So it's across the world, people were asked a series of questions, including, you know, nominating their city's coolest streets. And that's how the ranking gets put together. It, it is a really fascinating list because it is global, right? I mean, there are cool streets all over the place, but is there any uh, sort of defining continuum amongst all of this? Is there one sort of thing that tends to stand out for each of the 33? Well, I think what's interesting is that um, of all the questions that uh, the survey asks, people tended to talk most about their neighborhoods because I think, you know, people have a lot of pride about their neighborhood. And I think having been through a pandemic, a lot of local businesses, you know, have struggled. It's been a very difficult two years. And and you know now is the time where people are out, they're about, and they have a lot to say. Yeah, I guess that's part of it too. Is that whole idea of being able to once again enjoy street life to some extent? Uh, I, I, number one, number one. I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it is a one that maybe people who've been to Montreal may not have known of. Well, it's the first time that a Canadian city's actually been on on the list, and as a Montrealer, I couldn't be more proud. Um, Rue Wellington is, you know, I just spoke with Patrick Mainville, who's the, the DG of Promenade Wellington. And over the weekend, we saw something that we'd like to call the timeouts world coolest street effect. So right. feedback from the story is that the businesses are so proud. The feedback's been amazing. And some of them had, you know, their best selling weekend ever. So it's hard, you know, not to get emotional when you think about the positive impact that stories like these have on local businesses. And for listeners to understand, uh, Wellington in Montreal's Verdun neighborhood has has not been uh, traditionally seen as a, as a place to go, even for Montrealers, for the most part. I mean, within Verdun, uh, where people when people live there, it was sort of the main street, the shopping street. But outside of that, it wasn't really a destination. When did that start to change? So, you know, Wellington Street is now that sort of perfect mix of high-low, where, you know, old school meets new school. But as you said, it wasn't always like that. I, in the 50s and the 60s, Wellington Street, you know, was actually a very healthy commercial artery. It had high-end department stores and bakeries and shops. But then in the 70s, when the metro system provided e easy access to downtown, you could see the neighborhood businesses started to suffer and there was a downturn. Um, there's also the fact that in the 19th century, the Verdun founders, the city founders decided that they didn't want their city to be polluted by industry or by the vices associated with alcohol and hotel rooms. So Verdun was actually dry and industry free for most of the 20th century. So if you fast forward to 2010, when the first microbrasserie opened up in that old bank building right in the middle of the promenade, um, it's been, you know, slowly over a period of time building to what's now, you know, one of the busiest strips in the city and definitely the coolest. Um, you also have another Canadian street in there as well. Another one that perhaps I think people, a lot of people in Toronto will know about, but for people who visit, maybe one that people don't flock to. Uh, tell me a bit about Ossington and how it made it. So Ossington is, and I may get in trouble for saying this, but Ossington, dare I say, actually has a little bit of a Montreal vibe to it. Um, the thing that's super cool about Ossington Avenue is that it was originally um, constructed in the 1800s as part of a military road and has been in transition ever since. And as, as far as neighborhoods go, there's nothing really like it in Toronto. It's got, 
its own authentic, no frills vibe. It's a lot of small boutiques and storefronts. You know, they're a little more eclectic than the rest of the city. So it takes basically 10 minutes to walk Ossington Avenue from one end of the strip to the other, but with everything that's happening, um, you could spend hours down there. I guess one of the things I noticed, at least for the two Canadian entries, is that these are uh, are areas that ha- that have undergone fairly significant transformations in the last, in this century at least. Uh, and it kind of speaks to the different dynamics we're seeing in cities right across the country right now. I couldn't agree more. And as I said, it's been a really difficult two years and there isn't a better time to be celebrating streets like this as people are getting out and about um, if we go back to Wellington, you know, Wellington has access uh, via three metro stations in Montreal and a bike path that takes you basically from, you know, central downtown Montreal. So, you know, Peel and St. Catherine, where the timeout market is, and you can bike from downtown Montreal all the way uh, to Wellington and leave your Bixie bike there and, you know, enjoy an afternoon or an evening on the strip. One of the things that's always been fascinating about, I mean, this applies to all cities in Canada in some ways, is that um, there are areas that that have become, you know, have become increasingly popular just because people have been moved out of the areas that one would traditionally assume would be in that list. So when one thinks of Montreal, one always thinks of the Plateau or Mile End, you know, the St. Vieters and the Fairmounts, those areas tourists might know about. Uh, but those areas became really, really expensive over a while. And it felt like a lot of people who would have normally been there have now taken both their businesses and their ideas and their families to other neighborhoods such as Verdun? You know, Verdun is so family friendly. And, you know, when I spent a lot of time there this summer and, you know, you're walking along the promenade and you can see, you know, families hanging out, you know, eating ice cream. They're on their way to to the beach with sand toys. Um, You know, this weekend, I know that there were a lot of families that were, you know, visiting the strip for the first time and taking selfies, you know, it's really, it's, it's kind of a spot that has something for everyone. Is there ever a harm? And this is, this is a bit of a loaded question. Is there ever a harm when these places get discovered? Because in some ways, one of the things about Wellington, I think Ossington too, to some extent, is they are kind of, you know, somewhat secret to the people who live there. They're kind of hidden gems to some extent. Do you ever worry about uh, about what the exposure might mean? I know it's good news for the businesses, but I wonder how residents feel sometimes, other than just a sense of deep pride, I would assume. You know, it's a great question. And I think more is more, especially given everything that these businesses and a lot of families have been through, you know, considering the pandemic and the effect that the pandemic has had on neighborhoods and and local businesses. So I would say, you know, this is definitely something to be celebrated. And surely, you know, the the 250 businesses that are along that strip are, are really proud. When you look at the 33 streets then and take the Canadian streets into context, um, is there a common thread there? Do, are a lot of these streets worldwide sort of the lesser known ones? I mean, I looked at all of them. I've been to quite a few of those cities. I knew some of the streets, but not all of them. Uh, a lot of them do seem you know, like neighborhood streets, ones that are slightly off the beaten path uh, for, for the tourist crowd, for instance. So the common denominator is definitely that you know we aim with the timeout coolest streets list to shine a spotlight on some of the most vibrant and dynamic streets that are maybe a little more under the radar across the globe. So, you know, again, as this list has arrived, you know, people are getting out more, they're experiencing the best of the cities again. And I think, you know, we've returned with a bang. So I, there are, I've heard from a lot of readers and, you know, on social media from you know, Montrealers and, you know, I've seen from Torontonians who, you know, are like, oh, Wellington or, oh, Ossington. And so I think it's allowing locals and visitors to sort of discover or rediscover a city. I should mention that it wasn't that long ago. I think it, it dates back to a little bit now that you ranked uh, the coolest neighborhoods in the world. And there were a few Montreal, a few Canadian neighborhoods that, that made it in there as well, including Mount Pleasant in Vancouver and Villeray in Montreal. Um, what is it that makes, I mean, these days, given given the pandemic, do you think our idea of what, what a cool street or a cool neighborhood is has started to shift a little bit back towards sort of less of that commercial center, sort of the St. Catharines and the Young Streets and the Granvilles and more back to those sort of neighborhood streets? 
I do. I think that it's about being authentic, you know, and having, you know, an energy that feels, you know, family friendly, but also cool. It's about, you know, having a neighborhood or a cool street that is always bustling, has something new that's happening all the time, but is also totally unpretentious. As you know, from from most Canadian cities, uh, Montreal as well, there are lots of Wellingtons. I mean, Wellington's a great example because it is a, quite a. It's a very long street, um, and it has been in the summer. It's transformed into a pedestrian walkway, and all those businesses put their you know tables out on the sidewalk, and it becomes very. It, it's very happening to use that word, but I gather in every city there's a Wellington, and it's just a question of finding the one in your town, right? It's being adventurous. I don't know if there is a Wellington in every city, you know, I mean, there aren't that many streets that have, you know, the best, one of the best restaurants in the city at one end and one of the best new restaurants at the other with, you know, a beach, a few steps away, smack in the middle uh, that, and a tuk-tuk that can take you from one end to the other. You know, it really, it's a pretty special street. Right. It is. It is. Well, that's why it's number one, right? I guess what I meant is that there are a lot of little Wellington. Like, I mean, you know, this is this goes back to, I think it was a, it was a, about a famous book back that you can find a little Wellington in your hometown. In other words, like there are those little right. cool streets. It's just I, a question. Yeah. I look forward to Time Out's Coolest Streets in the World 2023 list, because then we can talk about all of those new streets. <laughs> And I guess as, as a very last question, I think one of the things that should be inspirational about uh, the transformation of Wellington to streets across the country is that it's come a very long way in a very short period of time. And I gather, you know, with the right amount of, you know, as, as these neighborhoods transform and new people come in and younger families move in, uh, that possibility, uh, now there's good public transit there too, which is sometimes a, a hindrance, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of streets across this country that could look to a street like Wellington for inspiration. Absolutely. And I, you know, they, they have been working, you know, to really make Promenade Wellington and Wellington Street, one of the the best streets in, in Montreal for about 10 years. And if you look at what's on the horizon, you know, they have a new basketball team where 3000 people are showing up for matches. Um, You know, they've got a pop-up shop and a container where, you know, Every two weeks, there's a new small business in Montreal that's rotated through. They have huge plans uh, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the promenade um, with a massive cabano sucre in the spring. So there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. Well, Laura, Laura Osborne, thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating to hear about, uh, about how Wellington has made such a quick ascension uh, to the top, to the top of the list. Well, thank you for having me. I thought it was really important to share something inspirational with you, something, some good news. How's that? Um, 28-year-old Taylor Lindsay Noel is doing a lot of things these days. She's very busy. She's an entrepreneur and owner of a Toronto-based organic loose-leaf tea company called Cup of Tay. And of late, she's also become a real force on social media through something she calls Access by Tay. Now, Taylor has used a wheelchair since she was 14. And accessibility has long been an issue when it comes to planning a night out or a trip to a public place or just about anything. Uh, so she's turned to making videos, TikTok videos, that highlight her experience in places such as restaurants, hotels, even a butterfly museum. Her goal is not to name and shame, but instead to show what the experience is like from her point of view, what the issue is, provoke change and get people in general talking about accessibility issues. Here are some examples of the videos she's posted on TikTok in recent weeks. Well, let's talk about accessibility. Like always, I checked the online listing and they did claim it. And it said that they were wheelchair accessible. So I was very surprised when I arrived and they didn't have a push to open or closed door, which is a big red flag. But navigating the restaurant itself, it was really easy and the table height was really nice. Like any average person, I wanted to go to the washroom partway through my meal, and I was shocked to find out that it was in the basement, forcing me to have to hold it throughout the entire meal, which was not ideal. I will say that the staff were really kind when my friend felt sick, and they allowed her to lay down, and they brought Sarah band-aids because she cut her foot prior to coming here. Overall, though, I don't think I would go back. And that is just some of what Taylor Lindsay Noel 
posts on TikTok, and it has had millions of views, millions of views her videos have had already. She even answers questions from those who watch them about other aspects of her life and wheelchair use. And uh, Taylor Lindsay Noel joins me now from Toronto. Thanks for your time. Congratulations on the success of your videos. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, tell me a bit about just just your story uh, and 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 what brought you to to those TikTok videos and and what made you feel like those were that was something a message that people really needed to see. Uh, like just about anything in my life, it all happened by happenstance. When I was 14, I used to be a high performance athlete in the sport of gymnastics and was a very bright hopeful for the 2012 Olympics. But uh, my coach had asked me to do a skill that's never been done before but withheld that information. And although I didn't want to do it, I decided to trust him over my gut feeling. And that resulted in me breaking my neck and severing my spinal cord, um, leaving me paralyzed at 14 years old. So you can imagine for the 10 years prior to that, my only goal and dream was to be an Olympian. And in a second, my life goals were taken away from me and I had to really start over, get to know myself minus an identity. And that led me to going to school for radio and television arts at Toronto Metropolitan University. And then from there, starting a podcast um, where I interview people over a cup of tea. And when I wanted a sponsor, I couldn't get one. So I started my own tea company called Cup of Tea, which eventually led me to access my tea, but I'm sure we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, no, I I, can't, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine just the, the 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 sort of how you've had to look at life and and find find new things to do and and challenges to uh, challenges to take up. And it sounds like it's been it's been a success, uh, one thing after another. Uh, tell me a bit about the about the videos because they are I've watched a lot of them and and they are really really well done. Uh, but yeah. there's a message there's a message in there and there's an important message in there. Yeah, so uh, about three months ago, I started on TikTok, Access by Tay. So what that means is that I go to different restaurants, event spaces, or pretty much documenting anywhere in my life. And I review not only the experience or the food, which most food bloggers or uh, lifestyle bloggers do, but I also review the accessibility. And that started because my friend was having a lot of trouble finding accurate information when it came to her wedding venue and I'm in her wedding party and she's grown up around me and knows what all the issues we run into time and time and again. And I was like, you know, we should document this and maybe it'll help because going online and seeing something that says, yes, for wheelchair accessible. But then when you get there, the bathroom's in the basement with a flight of stairs or they don't have push to open doors. I'm like, there needs to be a change. And sometimes people don't get it until they see it and people have been watching and seeing it and I think really connecting with my content, which feels so great. Where is the, uh, where is the gap? Because I know, you know, I think for a lot of people who, who don't have to navigate uh, in a chair, one looks at accessible and thinks, okay, well, they're accessible, right? There must be some guideline out there that allows them to declare this, but I gather it's not quite so simple. Yeah, there are guidelines and people just don't follow them. <laughs> Unfortunately, and there's not really a lot of follow-up to make sure that the guidelines are met. And also beyond the guidelines, it's like the maintenance of these things. They think, okay, like if the push the open door in the bathroom isn't working right now, like we'll get around to it. But the other day I went to a washroom, got in because the front button was working. But once you're inside, I got locked in and luckily I was with my friend. But if I was by myself, I would not have been able to open back up the door. And it was in a very loud restaurant. I wouldn't be able to yell over this speaker. So little things like that, which people don't think um, are a barrier, are massive barriers and actually things that make people with accessibility needs quite anxious. And that's why so often you you hear from my community that we don't go out because we don't want to have these experiences. We don't want to plan extensively and for things to go wrong. And that's a lot of uh, pre-thinking that a lot of people don't really think about or really know about unless it's your experience. Yeah, you, you hit on an interesting point. People don't think, right? They don't think, yeah. that, oh, well, if you know if that button isn't working now, uh, it'll be okay. We'll fix it. Uh, oh. But it doesn't help you in the short term, right? Obviously. No, not at all. And uh, I think it's just one of those things where I, and I, and I, and I feel like I 
am comfortable making the content that I do because I have lived my life on both sides. I've been completely able-bodied and I'm now someone who lives with a disability. So I get it, but I don't want the ignorance to be an excuse. I want it to be from today, we can start making changes and like, let's make it really visual. Let's make it appealing. Let's make it fast motion for TikToks and people want to watch this because I was scared that, you know, I'm providing information, but I'm like, do people care? And to my surprise, people really do. And it's not just people in chairs, it's their caregivers. It's somebody who just has an elderly parent who they want to take out or someone who just recently got into a car accident, broke the ankle for the first time. And they're like, wait, there's stairs everywhere or there's no ramps. And that's when it starts to clue in. What's really, um, what's there is a certain tone that you take though. You're not calling people out. Like you don't, you you know, and I I found that what, what, what led you to that decision to be very, uh, they're very positive videos all in all. You talk about the food, you talk about the decor and you talk about the accessibility, but you don't do it in a shaming way. You do it in a, in an educational way. What led you there? I really appreciate you saying that because I try to be so mindful in all the content that I create. I think I thank my university for giving me the tools to be able to edit and uh, learn how to storytell. But I, right when I started it, I wanted it to, I had a goal of it to be a positive experience. No matter if I have a negative experience at your establishment, in life, I try to always look at things with you know, the class half full. So I always try to find the positives. And so for instance, if I go somewhere and I have a really bad experience, I will mention it and point out the things, but I also say, you know, this is the things they've done really well. Or if they make these changes, that score could go from a three to a five really easily. And I really do try to take a positive spin whenever I can. So thank you for recognizing that. Yeah, and it is a choice, right? I mean, it's a choice that you made as, as a communicator. To try I could and... be wait. I could be silly if I wanted. If I was doing this just for the views, right? I could make it so much worse. I could talk about all these bad things in a very negative tone, and I know how to do that. But I'm actively choosing to try to make it as positive I can as I can, while also being honest. And that's the comments I see in my comment section a lot be like you know this is really great and thank you for constructive criticism um because i would never want people to be like you know she's just hating on everywhere she goes that's not my plan and most times i have a pretty decent experience so thank you (laughs) my guest this half hour is taylor Lindsay noel she's an entrepreneur founder of cup of tea uh she's speaking to us tonight from toronto but a series of videos she started a a few months back now called accessibility um uh taylor is in a chair and has been since she was 14 she explained how that happened earlier as an elite gymnast and an accident and something that happened to her uh but these videos have really shone a really bright light on some of the issues that uh, that people with with any sort of any sort of problems with accessibility uh suffer when they go to some of these establishments what has the reaction been like from the places you've been to because i'm sure they're i mean i'm sure a lot of these establishments want to do right they want to do right but sometimes who knows right that is the overwhelming response that i typically get is that they want to do better um if things if there's a significant amount of things that go wrong i send an email to them beforehand and i you know i say you know i came here on this day i had this experience i love the food or whatever and then i explain the things you know these are a few things i noticed in terms of accessibility that i hope that your establishment can take into consideration in the future because this is a barrier to people like myself or new moms or an elderly person. And I also say, I'm going to be posting in about two to three days. I'd love to include your feedback in my video. And the restaurants that have provided me with feedback, I'll give a great example, a restaurant called Miss Things. I went, their bathroom wasn't really accessible and their sink wasn't working. I sent them a message they replied back right away, sending me photos that they had fixed the sink. I included that in my video and the response in the comment where this is a, an establishment who cares. I'm going to go support them now because even though it wasn't fully accessible today, I know that they're the kind of place to make the difference. And they saw a very significant um, reaction in real life of people turning up as well. So I think when restaurants have that kind of perspective and desire to be better, it'll only help 
um, their audience as well. I imagine that in making these videos too, that part of the goal would be to create uh, to create allies, people who can who can look in a restaurant, maybe not have accessibility issues themselves, but also recognize that in any establishment there are accessibility issues and they should be fixed. One hundred percent. And my favorite comment to receive on my videos is, "Hey, I'm an able-bodied person, but since watching your videos now, I notice X, Y, Z when I go out, and I always bring it up to management. I'm like, this is exactly what." I'm doing this for. I, it's not just for me. I always say accessibility and making our world more accessible for all is something that should be proactive, not reactive, because at some point in our life, we are all going to need a ramp or a, an accessible washroom. It's just life. If you make it to 90, your, your body is not going to be the same. And so that makes me so happy that it's like creating a community of people, not only just serving people in wheelchairs, but for everyone. And it it just feels amazing. Do you ever get frustrated just by some of the things you see? I do. I do get frustrated sometimes. Um, but I've been in a chair now for 14 years. And like I said, I think the part of the reason why I feel like I'm the perfect person to make these videos is that I try not to let things bother me too much. I'm like, you know what? this is a learning experience or that just means that the food is probably going to be bad if I can't come here and I'll go somewhere else. Um, but I will admit when I first got injured and started going out as a younger person, like when I was 19, 20, 21, I would often come home and feel and cry or just tell my friends, I don't want to go. Um, but I've made the shift of coming on the other side and now creating a resource of, really gate places that I know to be accessible so other people don't have to have those experiences like I did. So listeners understand, though, because I was watching one video you did about your first holiday, and obviously you picked a hotel you knew would satisfy what you were looking for. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of planning that goes in, even at this wow. point, right? You really have to plan ahead. Yes, I had never been. That was my first holiday in two and a half years. Uh, I had never been to this place. And so I did so much research. I looked on their website. I looked on uh, Yelp. I called them several times because you have to kind of dot your I's and cross your T's because if I'm spending time driving two hours to get there and bringing my friend and bringing a nurse with me, there's so many things that can go wrong. And I almost in my head this that weekend planned for things to go wrong. And as we were driving home, my friend looked at me and she goes, that went off without a hitch. And I was like, I know that's so, it's abnormal. But that particular hotel and spa were incredible. And uh, it's just so nice to know that they have really done the work. And I was happy to share that with my audience who a lot of people saved it and forwarded it. So I'm hoping that they see a lot of return as well. Yeah, so Taylor, you have a lot of things coming up. You've made these videos now. I gather they're 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 popular, so people are going to want to see more of them. And you have this other adventure that you're right in the middle of. So busy. What's next? Well, the next few months are going to be extremely busy. It's funny because the people who have found me on social media don't know that I have a full-time job and I'm an owner and I'm a boss of a company that is growing exponentially. So Cup of Tay will be opening up its first brick and mortar location at Daffron and Lawrence in about a month's time. And it'll be just really a culmination of four years of a lot of hard work. And I'm so excited for that. And with Access by Tay, I actually have some trips planned in September and October. So it'll be my first time reviewing places outside of the city. And I hope to continue to grow that and show people beyond just restaurants or event spaces what an accessible life can look like. Well, Taylor, all the best with a cup of tea. Thank you so much for sharing your story and the story behind those great videos. Um, and I'll make sure that people know where to find them. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Well, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino is reacting to a 14-second video posted on Twitter that shows a man yelling and swearing at Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland on Friday during a stop that she made at City Hall in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Mendocino says there is absolutely no place for the intimidation, harassment, and threats that Freeland and her staff were subjected to. There's absolutely no place for the kind of intimidation, harassment, and downright threats that she and her staff were subjected to. Um, I've watched that video a number of times and 
every single time it just it it turns my stomach it's unacceptable Politicians from across the political spectrum, by the way, have been reacting to the incident with widespread condemnation. Uh, Freeland herself said that it doesn't make her any less of an Albertan, that she still uh, feels very much part of her home province. But it certainly raised a lot of questions just about the vitriol and the attack, the intimidation. Um, She was called a traitor, amongst other things. That might have been the nicest thing uh, that she was called in that exchange or in that uh, tirade. Um, MP and Conservative leadership Pierre Polyev spoke to Jazz Johal at CKNW's Jazz Johal show this afternoon, and he also condemned the attack on the Deputy Prime Minister. I've been also the victim of uh, this kind of abuse myself. Uh, My own family has received awful material uh, mailed to them on social media. I, of course, uh, in past years, been confronted with death threats and had to have RCMP security on me personally. Unfortunately, this kind of um, uh, abuse is all too common and directed at people of all political parties. Pierre Polyev on the Jazz Joe Hall show on CKNW earlier today. Well, it certainly has raised a lot of questions just about how can this be prevented? Uh, How can you stop these sorts of attacks from happening? Joining me now with more on this is a former member of Parliament and Conservative Cabinet Minister, someone who's well aware of these issues, Lisa Raitt. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. I guess just your initial reaction um, to what you saw on Friday when that video was made public. It really got my attention. And first of all, let's be reminded that it was made public because people wanted to brag about the interaction. Uh, that they were proud of the fact that they went after the deputy prime minister in the way that they did and told her what they wanted to tell her and threatened her and called her a traitor. They wanted to promote that, and that was promoted in social media. So I think that's the first takeaway. The first big difference for me of any of these other things that we've seen is that this was purposeful and produced for the purpose of social media. And I guess, for lack of a better word, adding to what maybe this this these people think is adding to their clout as being movers and shakers in whatever small worlds that they're spinning in for, uh, for this kind of stuff. So they saw a confrontation worth publicizing. What did you see? Uh, what I saw was a young female staffer keeping her composure and desperately hitting the button to try to close the elevator door. That's what I saw. And I saw two other female staffers shielding a cabinet minister and the deputy prime minister from any possible altercation. And I thought, this is really wrong. <laughs> this is this is not something that a their parents or partners, loved ones, friends would like to see. And it's not what they signed up for. And how did we get into this situation? Because you've been in those situations, you've been in countless public buildings as a cabinet minister over the years, as as a person in a position of power with staffers around you in public situations that may or may not have felt perfectly okay. Um, Yeah, it it was just, I I imagine you put yourself in Christia Freeland's shoes right there too. I did. I felt the knot in my stomach. Um, My staff were, first of all, let's just start with the basics. I'm 5'10". Christia Freeland is not 5'10". She is much less size than I am. So I always kind of walked around with a little bit more of a of assuredness in terms of, of my physical well-being and safety. I'm not saying that she doesn't, but I'm saying there is a really big difference in size between she and I. Mm-hmm. That all being said, my staff were cognizant that sometimes you were going into places that were not going to be friendly and they would staff accordingly. Um, clearly, going to see the mayor of Grand Prairie does not wave red flags for you in terms of having to have, you know, a larger guy with you uh, or asking that you your deputy minister comes with you, stuff like that. I mean, those are workarounds that you do use as tactics and tools, but this kind of came out of the blue and they were, they were caught out with, uh, with younger women protecting the deputy prime minister, which is what they were literally doing, trying to protect the deputy prime minister. What really surprised me about it was just, it was the level of the vitriol. It was just how vitriolic it was. It was, that was hatred that was being screamed at her and the people with her. Yeah. So that's interesting. Not, that's not a shock to me. Um, I've been on the receiving end of, of hate as well, coming from a different place on a different topic. 
And sometimes it's friendly fire coming from within my own party, quite frankly. Oftentimes it, during the time when I was sitting in, in the Harbor cabinet, it came from opposition type uh, scenarios. But mm. I've seen that hate before. I have. And being called a traitor and being called names, that happens. You're not, that's not new territory. New territory is the pride in that interaction, the amplification of it on social media. And the the other part that was problematic for me is that they were tracking her. You know, what's come out since then is the understanding that they were trying to find her and kind of driving around Grand Prairie after they heard that she was there in order to confront her. That, that's dangerous. That That can go a whole bunch of bad ways. What else? I mean, I asked Jag- Jagmeet Singh this question after that incident in uh, Peterborough, mm-hmm. and he he told me, "Well, you know, I have a black belt." I'm like, "Well, that's not really, you know, being yeah. tall or having a black belt. That's not really the kind of social discourse we want to have, is it? Or political discourse? I mean, this goes without saying." Um, but this strikes me as being being a bit of a breaking point. This particular incident, we see we saw something that maybe not everyone was fully aware was going on. But as you point out, it's been going on a lot. Mm-hmm. It has. I mean, I everyone's got their own story, Ben. And my story is I was at a Montreal, it's not Montreal, heaven forbid I said that. Oh, my gosh. I was at a Toronto Maple Leafs game. And right. I had my kids. You can understand why I'm horrified that I said I was at a Montreal game now. Right. But I was at a Toronto Maple Leafs game. And I had my kids with me. They were younger, probably 11 and 9, 11 and 8 at the time. And somebody who was picked off at something that my government did came out of the blue. He had had a few drinks and he just kind of laid into me. He spit on me. And and I just said, you know, I've got my kids here. We can talk about this another time. And he got more profane. Now he didn't corner me. I felt cornered, but I was in a big space and eventually security did come over and remove him. And he was asked to leave the building. Um, from there, I ended up having threat assessments when I did go out into public just during this period of time. And once or twice, I had to I had to have RCMP with me, uh, but but I wasn't cornered in an elevator, and he didn't have a buddy with him, trying to film it. And it also happened just because I was there. He happened to bump into me. Uh, he wasn't looking for me, and that's why I'm I'm very worried about this one because if we're in a situation where people are trying to create content for TikTok or YouTube, um by tracking down cabinet ministers, this is different. This is a very, and things can go wrong very quickly. And that's my concern. Where do you think, I mean, and and as you pointed out, this is not new and this is not confined to one political group. Um, It seems to depend, it always depends on who's in government, right? To some extent. Um, But but have you, did you notice even in the time that you were in public life that you were in politics, that it got worse? No, no. No. I think, you know, you can go back in time too to Mr. Mulroney and Mila Mulroney getting accosted outside the Western Harbor Castle in Toronto. You, There's death threats that have always been, we've had assassinations, you know, Darcy McGee was assassinated. I mean, all these, this has been something that's part of it. What's different now is that people want to use it in order to increase their clout. And before people are doing it because for whatever reason, they're obviously they have issues and, 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 purpose for whatever reason they take um but the uh the difficulty in this one for me is they may not be intending they like i don't think this gentleman and woman sought out the deputy prime minister to physically hurt her i think they wanted to intimidate her and yell at her but as i said things can go in a wrong direction pretty fast when you're put into these heated circumstances and that's what i see more and more people trying to create these circumstances of anger and um and they're they are more frequent in that case but the concept of a politician being under uh, i guess ha- a politician being afraid of somebody harming them that's always been there what can be done i know you mentioned a bit a bit about about training staff obviously but it's i guess it's this having to have this level of of awareness that every situation someone like christia freeland would be in or someone like yourself that there is always that possibility that things could go wrong like it did in grand prairie yeah i think that you're i think staff have to be aware i'd like to see 
the prime minister's office slash privy council office take a look at how ministers offices think about threats associated with work that the minister is doing outside of the national capital region. When you're in the national capital region, you have your driver and your driver is there to ostensibly provide some support and some protection if you get into situations. And they're always there. You don't have that when you're on the road. So I think they'll have to take a little bit closer look at these kinds of things. And that's the stuff that you do in order to mitigate against it happening. But the bigger question, Ben, is what are we going to do as a society? And I would say that uh, you got to shut down the social media outlets or no, you don't shut down the social media outlets. You've got to shut down the use of the social media outlet to publicize these kinds of interactions and just show them to not be acceptable anymore. And I know I'm getting into censorship, but quite frankly, who, how many other jokers out there are going to try to now corner a cabinet minister in order to prove that they, they took on the system or they took on Trudeau's government or they, they'll take on Pierre Polyev's wife or they'll take on Jagmeet Singh or take on Liz May. You know, that kind of stuff concerns me. I, I think it should be taken down and, and treated as, as dangerous. And that is going to cause a lot of people to say censorship. But I think that we have a situation where if, if the vehicle is being utilized in order to promote more of the same, then we do have a problem. And I know, uh, Lisa, having followed your career, this is not something you would just throw out there. This has been, you've thought about this. I thought about it. Uh, and, you know, I think eventually some of this stuff does get taken down and, and that's good. But again, Ben, I just can't get over in my head that, you know, that this, the, the man and the woman in the video were going all around Grand Prairie with a camera trying to capture her and they were setting her up. They wanted her. They wanted to yell at her. They wanted to, they wanted to scare her. They wanted to intimidate her, but they all wanted it for the purposes of pushing it out on their social media. So I think social media should not allow it to be pushed out. And maybe we won't have these situations occur because they're not being rewarded with that amplification that they're clearly seeking. You know, I've heard obviously over the past few days, this has been talked about a lot. Um, there has been this notion that, you know, people need to be listened to. But sometimes, and you pointed out that example of yours at the Maple Leafs game, um, this example in Grand Prairie, is is being listened to really, really the issue here? Is 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 having your opinion heard really the issue here? It doesn't feel like the issue. It doesn't feel like if if either you or Christian Freeland had said, hey, wait a second, I'll, I'll chat to you. What would you like to talk about? It doesn't feel like that would have solved anything. Well, she tried. That's yeah. the part of the video that I point out, right? She mm -hmm. hears her name. She turns to engage and she would engage if the person was going to not curse and swear at her, call her a name and, you know, kind of corner her and push her into the direction of a, of an elevator by his, by his sheer size. So that to me is, is the big difference. So if you're at a town, let's say you're a politician at a town hall and somebody gets, uh, gets very emotional and heated and, and uses profane language when they're asking you a question and you're in public, I think that's valid. I think it's fair game. And I think the, the politician has to answer it. But when you're on your own and you're not in a public face and you're a little bit vulnerable, maybe a lot vulnerable, um, that kind of stuff is, is very different. And that the gentleman was not seeking a policy debate. He, he was seeking a confrontation that he could put out to his buddies. And that's, uh, that is not political debate. I think Christia Freeland, if she had a disagreement with him, would have been absolutely able to listen to him and understand, comment back maybe, and then part your ways. That's how good political discussion happens, and that should happen. And you should be allowed to approach politicians and have those kinds of discussions. This was not what that was. This was not about that at all. The purpose of this confrontation was to publicize it. It was not to seek some kind of understanding as to her point of view. For everyone out there looking to go into public life, as you did, as Christopher Freeland did, from, from other places, I mean, both you and Christopher Freeland could have had very successful careers without ever going into public life. It must chill. It must send a chill down the spines of all those who go, hmm, I think I have something to offer public life, if that's what you're going to be confronted with. Mm, that, that what you saw is not 
the norm. Mm-hmm. It is something that we're all discussing now and we should, and it should not be the norm. Um, if you have a calling and you want to make a change specifically, let, let's use this as an example. Let's say you're watching it out there and you think to yourself, I, I really don't like these kinds of confrontations. They scare me. They shouldn't be something that happens in our society. Maybe the best way to actually change it is by running and making the change from the top. And I would invite you to think about it that way. And the only way that you can affect change is to, to be part of it and to push where you can. Like, did I need to go and, and tweet out what I felt? I did it because I felt that knot in my stomach. And I think people needed to understand that this was a dangerous situation that, that she was in and that you really shouldn't be saying that she deserved it because no one deserves what happened there. And that it's, it is, it can go wrong. I, just, I keep saying this over and over again, Ben, but yeah. it really can go south really quickly. And you don't have the intention necessarily, but it does. And that's um, that's the that's the concern that I have. And I would rather people work towards fixing it and coming into politics with the intention of fixing these kinds of things or getting involved in public sector or private, whatever, just speaking up about it. That's how you make the change. But sitting in your house and hiding from it, sorry, is not the way it's going to change. You know, tut-tutting is a terrible thing, and, and I hate politics. I'm never going to get involved. That's not helping any of us. I mean, get involved. Use your skills if you have them and you want to give them to the country. Lisa Ray, as you did. Thank you so much for your time tonight. <laughs> My pleasure, Ben. Take care.